Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. My guest today is Gary Collins, author of the ebook Primal Power Method. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. The Delaware House of Representatives is considering passing a bill that would legalize the sale of raw milk directly to the consumer. Currently, raw milk sales of any kind are illegal in Delaware. The bill would allow fresh milk to be sold by people with a raw milk permit, as well as on the farm or property where the milk is being made. Everyone in every state should have the right to buy fresh milk. So hopefully Delaware will pull through with this and allow its citizens to have milk the way nature intended. Next, various accomplishments have been made in the movement to label genetically modified foods in the past three weeks. Connecticut and Maine have passed labeling bills. The USDA approved a non-GMO label for meat products. Chipotle labeled which foods on its menu contain GMOs. And the Senate Appropriations Committee gave the FDA funding to label genetically modified salmon if the GMO fish is approved. None of these are as major as what California's Proposition 37 would have done, but they're all steps in the right direction, and perhaps none of these accomplishments would have happened if Prop 37 hadn't become a ballot initiative and educated people about genetic modification. Also, the government is proposing new standards which call for foods being sold in schools to be healthy. These rules will apply to cafeterias, vending machines, snack bars, and other food sold regularly at the schools. As usual, these rules go for the politically correct nutrition and fail to solve the problem cutting out real junk food. This isn't to say that they aren't cutting out some truly unhealthy foods, such as candy and cookies, but it accepts many products that are still bad for you, such as diet soda pops and baked potato chips. And finally, a recent study in the journal Current Microbiology says that use of synthetic agricultural pesticides, such as Monsanto's Roundup, is reducing the biodiversity in soils and lowering the beneficial microbes in raw dairy products. The study also specifically says that Roundup is the worst offender in destroying organic life. More evidence against the use of pesticides and proof that Monsanto isn't a company who has the consumers at their best interest. And now for the main course, which today is the Primal Diet. The Primal Diet is a diet similar to traditional ones such as Weston A. Price and Paleo. Paleo and Primal, though, have nuanced differences and certainly have specific principles that make each one stick out. Both focus on the benefits of animal fats, but the Primal does allow for a small amount of properly prepared grains and some dairy. And many people in the real food world combine the principles of Price, Paleo, and Primal diets. One such person is New American Nutrition founder Gary Collins, who recently released the ebook The Primal Power Method. So here now is Gary Collins to talk about the Primal Diet and how he incorporates other elements from Weston, Price, and Paleo into it. Gary, welcome back. 
Thanks a lot, Aaron. Great to be here. It's great to have you. We had you on at the beginning of the year, and since then, you've released a new book, The Primal Power Method, which you were talking about some principles when we were last on, but I know that also since then, you've also developed some new principles in what's become known as your book, The Primal Power Method. Yeah, back then we were uh, working and uh, we'd released a kind of more professional version, which is Factor X, which we use to train personal trainers and healthcare practitioners. And what we did is uh, we created the Primal Power Method to fill the gap for the general consumer. And also it works for practitioners as well that we've found that they're, they're using it with their clients as kind of a, a following or to follow a process and it gives them the information without them having to, you know, continually spend hours talking about all the nutrition and exercise that they need to do. So the Primal Power Method is one more for general people. Factor X is more for nutritionists, but they can also use the Primal Power Method. Is it kind of a supplementation to Factor X for the nutritionists and practitioners? Um, it could be. Um, it wasn't developed that way. We developed it to be a standalone product with the, the Primal Power Method with no guide. But we have noticed that they do kind of blend into each other. And what the practitioner can use Factor X for them to have an outline what to follow on the principles. And then the primal power method is what they give to the end client. And it also works for the general consumer because that's what it was primarily written for. And since writing the primal power method, has some of your thoughts on nutrition changed since when you had written Factor X? You know, they really have. Um, when I was writing Factor X, I started that probably almost three and a half years ago. So I was going through my evolution as well, um, as we're always changing, you know, and tweaking our diet. And back then, I was uh, a little more lenient on grains and uh, beans, legumes, but I've kind of moved away from that. And I'm more on the primal side of I think it's best for my clients and people to eliminate grains and beans. Uh, I just have noticed that health-wise, it seems to work the best and eliminate a lot of health issues for everyone. So that's probably the biggest change. I would say. And in Primal Power Method, although you do say to eliminate grains and beans for the most part, you do also say a thing which I think is key to the ideology of the Primal Power Method, which is don't do anything extreme. Yeah, and we have five basic principles that we go over in the Primal Power Method when we introduce people to it. And the first one's knowledge is power, avoid extremes, keep it simple, uh, something is better than nothing, take action today and every day. And we found with those five principles, it makes it a lot easier for people to follow and understand because we don't take that extremist approach. You know, it's more of you've spent decades um, causing these issues with your body through primarily nutrition. You're not going to fix them overnight. So you need to, to take a moderate approach and do it in phases and try not to do everything at once because that's when most people fail. You know, they just burn out. They last about two weeks. They go, this is just way too hard. Um, so that's kind of how we came up with those principles. And I've seen that a lot of other books, they often don't use the principle of don't do anything extreme. So I think that gives certainly your book a unique take and something that really all of them should push on. Now, I have noticed actually a number of other people in the primal diet that said they don't do anything extreme. And I don't know, maybe that's just a coincidence that people in the primal movement, none of them follow it to extreme, whereas I see it with some other groups like paleo, that they do it very extreme. Have you noticed that with other people in primal? I have, actually. I think uh, 
primal followers and the primal authors, I think we're just a little more well-rounded. Um, we come from a little different backgrounds. I, paleo is more of a diet approach, and we're more of a holistic approach. So, you know, we, most of us have backgrounds in exercise, nutrition, and we take, uh, you know, and with, with exercise and athletic side comes along the mental side. Because to be an athlete, you have to be mentally strong. So we kind of tie all those pieces in together. And I think that gives it a more moderate approach as opposed to, you know, paleo, which we definitely integrate paleo. You know, I'm a big fan of paleo. And I use most of my clients, I start them with the paleo diet. Um, but it's, it's just more one-dimensional. And they tend to set these hardcore rules that I don't think people can necessarily follow because they just don't have the basic understanding of diet. So it's really difficult for them to follow it, you know, and you know, some of them eliminate sugar within you know, 14, 21 days. Well, you know, physiologically, that's almost impossible because it takes about 12 to 18 months for your body to not have those cravings for sugar anymore. You know, you got to get all your metabolic pathways in check to eliminate, you know, that, that addiction. So, yeah, I think we are. I think we definitely take a, a more moderate approach and, you know, just take it slow and you'll be more successful for it. You give a good description of the difference between paleo and primal in your book. And something I've noticed is that the paleo definition is evolving in terms of what it means, because originally the meaning of it was no dairy. It wasn't so much about the no grains. And also they believed in the lean meats. And it's changing. A lot of people in paleo that I know now they're pretty much all don't do any grains. Some paleo do dairy, some don't, and they are more believers now in the benefits of saturated fat. In some ways, I think almost like what people define as paleo now almost seems like it's become more of really what the primal diet is. It is, I, and I see that too. I, and I like that they're going that way, but at the same time, I think it becomes very confusing because if you oh, read, yeah. you know, a paleo book from 10, 15 years ago, like Rob Wolf or Lauren Cordain, the principles are quite a bit different than they are today, even though they've updated their books and, and they've evolved. But it's more of you get confused because you've got the low-carb movement, you've got the paleo movement, you've got the primal movement. And they're all subtly different. And I think primal tries to implement a lot of different principles uh, to make them the easiest to follow. And, yeah, the paleo diet, it's kind of turned into a moving target. You're not quite sure what it is at times, depending on who you read or who you talk to. Um, but it is. It's definitely the paleo movement is evolving, and I'll be curious to see where it goes. And I've seen some people in the paleo movement also recognize themselves as being into primal too, such as Liz Wolf of Cape Girl Eat. Her description, although people often think of her as paleo, she describes herself as paleo primal, Weston Price. So she kind of defines herself in a number of different groups. And that leads me to the question, what are your thoughts on labels? Do you think there's a need for these different labels, or is it more about finding the common ground in all of these groups? Um, I, I think it's both. Uh, you know, I think it's nice to have the differences because we're all different. Um, I know the low-carb diet works for some people better than the primal diet, better than paleo. Um, and I think it's a preference. And with that, you know, I, I think it just gives people options, which I always like. I don't like to be a, a mainstreamer. I go, no, you know, primal is a holistic view. And if you like the paleo diet better, you just implement paleo within the primal net, you know, 
foundation and it works fine. And you can also implement the low carb, which is, I think most people get confused between low carb, primal, and paleo. And the biggest difference with low carb is it's just a lot more calories in fat. You're looking 50 to 60% of your calories are going to be in fat. As opposed to paleo, which is much, is less, I think there's, you know, they do the kind of, what is it, 35, 35, 45 or something like I can't remember. They have a zone. Oh, it's 40, 40, 30. That's what it is. And primal, we're kind of in between there. We kind of float. And we say, well, you got to change your fat intake depending on how you feel when you're athletic uh, as far as your endeavors. You know, if you're not athletic, you don't need to be loading up on carbs and, you know, carb loading and, and eating a ton of fat um, unless you need to because of uh, your metabolism. Well, that goes into the low-carb diet. That's the Jimmy Moore model. So, yeah, I, I think it's good that they, they, they are all different and you can integrate them. And Liz, it is. She does, uh, she does a good job of that. She's kind of uh, a piece of each, which I kind of consider myself as well. Um, I, I implement a lot of different principles, but I think that's what's behind the primal is we do. We take a lot, the best of the principles out there, and we integrate them into one format. I try to take a piece of each as well, and I do think that's the best method. A lot of my favorites do that approach. Also, Stanley Fishman in his books, it always says traditional, primal, and paleo. And another great point that you make in the primal power method is how every person is different. Because I think a lot of books don't really draw attention to it. They try to make it like this is a one-size-fits-all. But I do have to ask, on the other hand, are there certain things that apply to everyone as far as nutrition? Um, I think the basic uh, foundation of eating healthy animal meats, vegetables, fruits, with some nuts and seeds. I think that principle goes across all of them, and uh, that's kind of the foundation I look at on the nutrition side. Um, but within that, you kind of have to figure out what foods can they tolerate, and that's where everyone's different. And, you know, you can give them a basic outline of those five kind of food groups, I call it, or, you know, they cover all the macronutrients, your three macronutrients. But I think all of us in the low-carb, paleo, and primal, we all take those food choices for the most part and they're just tweaked a little bit a little different you know like we primal's more saturated fat paleo likes to use more monounsaturated fat no okay you know that's just a difference um but yeah it's uh it's just different different philosophies i think our core is very similar they're very close. And for the people that haven't read the book yet, what do you would define as the five food groups? The five different food types is animal flesh. You have your fruits, you have your vegetables, nuts, and seeds. I consider those kind of basic elements of the diet, but you have to move those around depending on your requirements and kind of your physiology. Some people can eat a lot of protein. I consider myself a high-protein guy because I eat a lot of protein. I like to eat a lot of protein. My body tells me to eat it. But that doesn't necessarily work for some of my clients. So I'll switch around. I'll, I'll kind of lower the meat and I'll bring in more vegetables. Or, I'll, you know, depending on what their goals are too. So I, I just like those as the basic building blocks of the diet. And I think any book you read in Paleo, Primal, or uh, Low Carb, we pretty much hit on those five foods. And that's what our diet was. I mean, that's the whole you know, Paleolithic diet of 2.5 million years ago to 10,000 years ago before modern agriculture. Um, that's what we ate. 
And I think we all agree on that. Certainly. And going into the group of the animal fat, are there certain types of animal fats you see as superior to others, like, say, the red meat versus the white meat? You know, I really don't in a way. It's, again, preference. I have clients and I work with people who just red meat doesn't agree with them. It just doesn't. And if that happens, what I do is we, we tell them to eat more, you know, more chicken, more fish. And if you can, supplement in with some red meat here and there. And then others like me, I eat quite a bit of red meat. And I supplement around it with fish and chicken and turkey and pork and those kind of things. And it just depends. Um, I think it's just variation. And unfortunately for us, uh, we can't go back to our, especially Americans, to our ancestral lineage to see what our diet was because we're kind of a melting pot. So it's hard for us to pinpoint what traditionally we would have eaten, you know, and trace back our roots. So it's kind of, you have to experiment. And I just use it as variability. I, I just, uh, we work with them and, uh, you know, they buy, you know, uh, usually I have them buy lamb, chicken, turkey, and beef to start with and supplement with some fish. And we just see how they do. And then they come back to me and they go, you know, you know, the, the, the red meat really didn't agree with me. And so we just basically pull that out a little bit or they will eliminate it at times. I have clients that they don't need any red meat. They just can't do it. So I think, again, it just it just depends. So it's more a thing of not getting people to eat a certain type of animal fat, but just getting them to eat an animal fat in general. And some animal fats work better with some than others. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of the approach because all, as we know, there's there's leaner uh, types of animal flesh, but they all, protein and fat, go together. That's why they're always contained in animal meat. You never get animal uh, flesh that's just protein or it's just fat. They're always together. So it's just uh, different, you know, different ratios, but uh, it just depends. I, and I think it comes down to preference. I think as your body adapts, your body will tell you kind of what you want to eat in that sense. For me, like I said, I tend to eat a little more red meat than most people. But I'm told I don't have any issues with it, and that's why. Right. I'm the same way. I tend to eat more red meat than other meat. So it seems like it's more about having the animal proteins over the other type of proteins, which I can certainly agree with because the problem with the plant proteins is that while, yeah, they do have protein, they're high in phytates and lectins, which make us unable to absorb it, versus the animal proteins, the saturated fat makes us able to take in all the protein. Yeah, and that's, you know, why we, uh, vegetarians have such a difficult time. Uh, usually they can get away, especially vegans, they can get away with it for about 12 months, 12 to 18 months, and then you start to see their health start to slide. And it's because the lectins and phytates are, are basically blocking the absorption of all the essential minerals that they need to, to have cellular function. And they start becoming depleted, and it takes a while for that depletion to take over, and then they get things like, you know, osteoporosis, because now their body is actually taking those minerals out of their bones, especially calcium. And you see that, and then on top of it, they're over-carbing, you know, to try and get a complementary protein out of something like they typically do is rice and beans. You know, it's high carb, and you're getting very little protein out of it. And then you're getting, like we said, the anti-nutrients. So it's almost like you're fighting yourself. And uh, all the inflammation that comes along with that type of diet um, even though today, vegetarians, I'm, I'm really torn on that because most, I don't know about you, but most vegetarians I talk to are not really vegetarians. Uh, uh, most of them eat animal products and they eat 
eggs and cheese and some will even eat meat. I go, in my mind, I go, is that really a vegetarian or are you just eating a normal healthy diet? And I think the term vegetarian is kind of a mislabeling. I look at the more at the approach of vegans. You know, vegans are not going to be eating animal products, period. And that's a whole different uh, kind of set of how they do the complementary foods because they truly have to do it. A vegetarian can get around it because they're, they're supplementing their diet with animal products. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it's uh, not a good approach. And I've, I've worked with many former vegetarians, well, they're former vegetarians now. Actually, one of my editors is a former vegetarian, so we have some pretty interesting discussions on that. It surprises me how many people that call themselves vegetarians actually eat fish. That's the big thing I've noticed. And that's the advice that I would give to anyone who is a vegetarian and they're having health problems is they need to look at certain animal fats. So certainly eggs and dairy aren't uncommon with vegetarians, but they should also look into getting some fish and taking some of the cod liver oils. And I think they should also consider a bone broth. Yeah, and as we know, bone broth works miracles um, with any of my clients who have digestive issues, which is almost all of them. Um, but for the people who are pretty far along, usually it manifests itself around 35, 40 years of age is where I notice it. And that's the first thing I put them on. I put them on bone broth, and I tell them to drink 24 ounces of bone broth a day. And they're amazed. I mean, it turns around their digestive issues very quickly, and also now they can get all those vitamins and minerals that they've been depleted on because that's what you're doing. You're just boiling bones. You're boiling animal bones. So those minerals that they're deficient in with the anti-nutrients, well, now they're getting them in mega doses, and then they're getting all the amino acids that go along with rebuilding the gut and also producing more hydrochloric acid because, as we know, uh, most people today do not produce enough hydrochloric acid in their stomach, so they don't have proper digestion and it also, you know, it's a defense mechanism, so they end up tending to get a lot of infections and colds because they don't, the, the stomach acid isn't killing enough or things are sliding through. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of bone broth for sure. As Kayla Daniels calls it, when vegetarians are given bone broth, she describes it as vegetarians losing their virginity. <laughs> that, that, yeah, I, and I, I love her books. Um, cause she's pretty much the foremost expert when it comes to bone broth and, you know, obviously leaky gut syndrome, autism. And yeah, it's, and it's something that you can get them to transition into, even though it's coming from animal products, they see it as a fluid. So they don't see an animal part, you know, they're not seeing, you know, a steak, right. they're getting it in a liquid form. So it's kind of, it is, it's that basic baby step to get them to do it. And I've had actually really good success starting with the bone broths with vegetarians because of that factor. They have a, a mental block of where they go, if they see animal flesh, it actually makes them nauseous. They have issues, just they can't get past that mental block. And the broths are easy because it's just, like I said, it's a liquid form. And going back to what you were saying about HCL, I know in your book you talk about how some people shouldn't eat as much meat because they have low HCL. Something that I know a lot of nutritionists do for people that get into eating more meat and more fat and they have trouble with it is taking the HCL supplements. What are your thoughts on those supplements? Um, you know, I don't, I've been very fortunate. I don't really use them. Um, I just, I've had good luck with the bone broth and using a good uh, practitioner strength probiotic. And then I have another product that I use, uh, which is called GI response. And it's a high dose of L-glutamine. 
and it has digestive enzymes in it, and it has probiotics in it. So I've been very fortunate that um, with the things I use, I don't have to use the HCL supplements. Uh, my goal is to try and get that HCL up and running through the natural process, and you know, you're going to get your glycine from your bone broth. So the glycine is a precursor to make your HCL. So they kind of go hand in hand, and I've noticed the conversion is very quick. I mean, it's days that they start to see the digestive difference and that their hydrochloric acid is already kicking up. But I also recommend them not to eat. You know, that's where the red meat elimination comes in because it's harder to digest, and they don't have the proper hydrochloric acid, and, you know, they don't have the right digestive enzymes coming out. So they have issues, and also I tell them don't start eating a bunch of raw fruit or vegetables that causes a whole other issue. So, um, you know, I just don't use it. I don't have anything against it. I, I know other practitioners who use those supplements with great results. And another thing about the animal fats that you talked about in your book and about the unhealthy fats, one that I saw you listed, which I know may bother some people, was the issue of fried meat, specifically bacon being one type, although you say bacon is okay in moderation. What are other meats that be considered fried meats? And specifically, what is it about these fried meats that people should avoid? Well, traditionally, obviously, we, we eat a lot of fried meats in our uh, Western diet. And the problem with those are, obviously, we're using the rancid, you know, uh, vegetable oils that, uh, you know, mass-produced, um, you know, they use hexane gas to extract a lot of the oil out of, uh, you know, the vegetable products or seeds. And, you know, frying, when done properly, I don't see a problem with it when you're using such as coconut oil or palm oil because they have a high heat point. So they don't go rancid very easily, and you can fry with them. And bacon is considered fried because it's basically cooking in its own grease, in its own oil. And what I tell people, you know, say you want to make your own healthy chicken nuggets, well, you use palm or coconut oil. You use a non-grain flour. I prefer almond. And you just fry it like you would anything else. And it's just a diff, completely different food product, you know, uh, and it's hard to compare apples to apples because, you know, you get, you're getting capho meat and then you're, you're putting in a, in a highly processed grain flour and then you're throwing it in uh, rancid oil and you're cooking it far beyond its heat point. So basically you have just this toxic deep fried piece of meat. Um, so it's hard to compare too because, you know, most people who are, Frying um, using coconut oil, palm oil, or getting grass-fed, you know, no antibiotics, organic meats, and that's a totally different type of meat, nutritional value as well. So yeah, it's. Uh, I tell people obviously you don't want to fry foods all the time, but I don't see a problem with it either. I mean, it's it's healthy fats. You use them as energy. Um, just uh, a lot of people make the mistake of using lower heat point oils to fry in. You know, I've known people do it in olive oil more. God, no, don't use olive oil to fry in. You know, you can get away with it with avocado oil, maybe, but you're pushing it. So I tell them it's butter, coconut oil, or palm. Those are the ones you want to use. And you can use lard and tallow, obviously, but they're, those are harder to find in a good natural form. So I always say coconut and palm oil are the easiest. The lard and tallow are hard to find and also more expensive. So you're right, doing something like a butter or a ghee, a coconut oil, those are the best way to fry things in. I would say also frying it in a bone broth. Yeah, and actually that it, what that changes, it, it gives it moisture. So it changes it a little bit, and it gives it a more enhanced flavor. That's why I tell people, too. There's no one way to do anything. Um, there's so many recipe ideas and so many different 
twists you can put on any food item to make uh, it palatable for you or something you enjoy. Um, the way I cook, I don't necessarily see that's right for everyone either. I say I give you a basic model of what to cook, and then you tweak it from there. You know, you make it your own. And I think, yeah, like you, you know, you like, uh, you know, you like frying in, in the bone broth, and that's a great idea. And it's a, you know, you get to use multiple. Uh, avenue so you can use your bone broth for a stew and then you can store it on the side and use it as a frying oil too. That's great. And a good thing I think about the bone broth is that it's often used for frying the muscle meats because the muscle meats, those are the meats that we're used to eating, but the ones with more nutrition are the organ meats. They're the ones that have more of the vitamins. The muscle meats, they certainly have their values when they're grass-fed with the CLAs and the omega-3s. But even the grass-fed ones, if they're not cooking the right thing, you can still feel a little tired after eating them. So that's why I think it's best to cook it in something that was taken from bones, like the bone broth or the tallow, or cook it in something like butter. And then you don't have the feeling of fatigue after eating the muscle meat. Well, yeah, because you're adding in, again, the fats. You're adding in that energy source. And traditionally, you know, we just didn't, we didn't eat just the muscle meat. You know, we always went for the organs first because that's where all the, the fat and vitamins and minerals were. And, yeah, and it helps to tenderize it. You know, the, the muscle meats tend to be tough. And if you cook them in something like a bone broth or, you know, I'll cook, actually, I'll cook uh, steaks in coconut oil sometimes. And it does. It tenderizes it. I know I'm getting those, you know, medium-chain triglycerides, so I'm getting a good energy source. I think part of it, too, is we tend to overeat and you can overeat protein, you know, you can overeat animal flesh. And if you don't stop and you eat a big portion of it, well, we know through, you know, gluconeogenesis that you're going to convert that extra protein into glucose. So that could get the insulin rise as well if you eat too much. And I've experienced, I've done it. Um, it takes a lot, but you're right. I can eat, you know, a lot of meat and then just all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wow, I am tired. And it's probably because I've definitely overdone it. And also you're pulling in all that blood and all that energy into your stomach. And we know protein is, it's harder to digest than a simple carbohydrate or a complex carbohydrate. So it's going to take more energy. And going back to the concept of bacon, another place where bacon does fall is it is a type of processed meat. And I know that processed meats are also a type of protein that you said to avoid, which I would agree for the most part. And this actually got me to doing a little thinking about the concept of processed meats, things such as bacon and also ones like prosciutto, pastrami. Looking back at it, these are traditional meats. They aren't newfangled types of meats, but I do see a difference in the way that these were made 1,000, 5,000 years ago versus now. And the difference I see is that now these processed meats are made for the age of refrigeration and they can sit a long time in the refrigerated section of the stores. When these processed meats were made before, they would cure them and basically they would eat them. So I see a difference between, say, a pastrami that you cure yourself by following the recipe in nourishing traditions versus even a grass-fed pastrami that you find at Whole Foods and it could be sitting in the refrigerated section for a long time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, I agree with you there. There are uh, definitely two different types of meats. It's almost the end, like sausage is a perfect example. You know, sausages have been made for thousands of years, and today they have a bad rap because well, it's multiple reasons. Obviously, if you're eating it through a CAFO source, you know, confined animal feeding operation, you know, you're eating all the chemicals and hormones and, and all the steroids that they're giving these animals in that meat. Then they're throwing in these 
uh, you know, chemical preservatives, and now you've got this concoction that technically isn't even food anymore. And I think it's given those traditional foods a bad rap, like bacon, salami, pastrami, um, which I all love. I I buy the natural fermented, you know, no, you know, no artificial, you know, uh, products used. And yeah, you're right, and they do go bad. Um, but I think that that's what's happened is we've just basically turned in a good food into a bad food. Now it's got a bad rap. And I think a lot of us are starting to get back into those more traditional, uh, you know, sausages and salamis, and and they are different. I mean, when you use a, a fermentation process to, you know, to preserve them, you know, you're getting all the good bacteria, you know, and we're so bacteria phobic today that that's where I think a lot of our chemical preservatives came from, not realizing that we need those. We need those bacteria to survive. And even, uh, you know, you go get your processed sausages and pastrami, well, guess what? They're dead food. They're not alive anymore, and they're supposed to be alive. And they're dead, so they stay, you know, you can keep them in the refrigerator for six months. I mean, I think it's pretty uh, scary that you can put, you know, some of those lunch meats and their expiration dates are, you know, six, seven months a year, some of them. It's like, whoa. Okay, I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. Oh, yeah, you won't get any disagreements from that about that being scary. And it kind of goes with my growing, I don't want to say dislike, but I guess I'm moving away from the supermarket. Don't get me wrong, there are certain things I buy at the supermarket, sometimes buying some fruits because I can't find them in season at the farmer's markets and a couple other things, but I really see supermarkets as a privilege. If you look at it, it's something that is not a new concept. It hasn't even been around for a hundred years. More and more, I just want to get as much stuff from the farmer's market because buying something from the supermarket, you're always putting in an extra step between when it was grown at the farm and then when it gets on your plate. And with the extra step, it loses the nutrients. Yeah. And, uh, that's a very interesting point, and that's like with my beginning clients, I have to introduce them to the smaller, you know, local market, the farmer's markets, what a CSA is. And that's why. Um, I find that in the grocery store, it's just too confusing. And, you know, you're reading labels because everything's in a package. Um, the organic fruits and vegetables are all mixed together with the non-organic and the GMOs, and you're all, okay, I've done it myself, gone into a grocery store thought I was buying, a, you know, an organic pear or something, and I come out and I realize that, you know, it's got a four in the beginning of the number, and I go, you know, I grabbed the wrong one. And I think what I teach them, too, is frozen. If you're having a hard time and you're getting used to buy organic frozen vegetables because they're usually picked at peak ripeness on top of it. And even with the organic, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it's become such a trend that you go and you pick up an apple and you find out, you know, it's from 4,000 miles away, halfway across the world or whatever. You know, why is my apple from, you know, here? I don't get it. And they have to pick it unripe. They have to ripe it. It's ripened along the way, and that takes away from some of the nutrients in it. And, yeah, I, I noticed that the, the big grocery store, that makes it confusing. Um, you go to the local grocery store or farmer's market, it's all done right there. You know, it's grown there locally. It's picked at its freshest point. And that, that's why we always preach, you know, buy local. And plus you're supporting the local economy. You know, you're, you're supporting a, a mom-and-pop business. 
as opposed to, you know, supporting, you know, some business in another country. Um, you know, that's just the way I look at it. I think uh, it's a better choice all the way around. And I think that fits very much in tone with the concept of the primal diet, of avoiding these steps in between and not using excessive refrigeration to store these products. Yeah, and, and I teach, you know, as we say, food is supposed to rot. You know, it's not supposed to sit on your shelf indefinitely, you know, like a McDonald's hamburger. Um, and I think that's part of the primal power methods philosophy is it's very similar to Weston A. Price. Um, the paleo movement does it as well. It's, it's by local. Um, it's the easiest way, not only uh, for, you know, you're, like again, you're supporting a local economy, but it's easier for you as a consumer because you don't have to guess. Um, you go into a grocery store and you got to guess. You have to figure out, okay, why, you know, this is from Mexico. What, you know, you'll go, well, what, what procedures did they use to grow this organic fruit? Um, is it the same? And you start questioning, and, and it becomes complicated because I get that question all the time. They go, well, you know, I bought these bananas from such and such com- uh, country. Is there a difference? And I go, gosh, you know, that's, that's a complicated question. You know, basically, I don't know because we're not there to see the procedures and how they're grown with your local farmers, and I encourage this for people to do too. I go, go on their tours. You know, any good organic ranch is going to have four, five, six tours a year, and you get to go out there and you get to see the entire process. They will show you from seedling to, you know, picking to sending out. They'll show you the whole process. And I think that's a, a valuable tool too because we need to get in touch with our food. you got to know where it's coming from. If you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know what it is, even if it's labeled organic. You don't know. You don't know. Uh, that's one of the big things with organic, too. Uh, you know, there's a kind of a loophole because you can use different water. You know, there's no kind of uh, regulations on the type of water you use. So, yeah, you're not using herbicides and pesticides, and you're gr- not growing GMO seeds. But guess what? Where's the water coming from? And they've done that in China, and they've shown where the water's coming from in their organic ranches. And it's probably worse than our mass-produced, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables. So that's why I tell people it gets tricky once you start getting outside of your your general area of where you live to get your food. Visiting farms, very important thing. Everyone should do that. If it's truly organic, sustainable farm, then they'll allow for tours because they have nothing to hide. If they don't let you tour the farm, then you have to wonder about it. So we'll talk more with Gary Collins about his book, The Primal Power Method. But first, a word from our sponsors. Tier Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Plus, try the recently released einkorn and einkorn flour. Einkorn is an unhybridized wheat variety referred to as the original wheat. To order your sprouted flour, visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free at 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. 
Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea States Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Alea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore on New Dissident Radio. I'm interviewing Gary Collins, who recently released the ebook The Primal Power Method. We've been talking about the good and bad types of proteins, specifically animal proteins. And another principle in The Primal Power Method is that not all carbohydrates are bad. This is not a no-carb diet. So, Gary, what would you say are the good sources of carbohydrates? Um, I tell people... Uh, when we when we first start, you know, they got changed their paradigm on how they think of carbohydrates because it's been pounded in our bread or in our brain that you know we must eat bagels, pasta, rice. You know, those are our carbohydrates, and you know, I have to tell them, okay, no, not really. Our natural carbohydrates are from nuts, seeds, vegetables, and some fruit. And trying to get away from the mass-produced grain products and get them out of that mindset, and also that they need to carb load. We've been just told, you need to carb load. To feel good or if you're going to do anything, exercise, carb load. Well, you only have, you know, basically 14 ounces of glycogen in your liver and your muscles, and you cannot store beyond that point. It's, it's, it's limited. Even if you're an athlete, you have a small percentage more of glycogen storage than an average person. So once those stores are full, you're just adding excessive carbohydrates and that stores of fat, you have the insulin response, you know, and that causes chronic inflammation and a whole host of other health issues. So I have to kind of pull them back and say, okay, you got to understand what a carbohydrate is. You know, and they, if you look at the food pyramid, it's 11 to 20 servings of carbohydrates a day is what they recommend when you throw in, you know, your fruits, vegetables, seeds, and your grains and your cereals. And that's impossible. And if you eat that much uh, carbohydrates, you're going to be fat. And that's kind of what we have going on today. We have a huge obesity problem. So the ones I tell them to focus on are vegetables. Um, you know, that's where you get a lot of water, vitamins, minerals, and they're your, you know, your oxidators or antioxidants. I'm sorry, not oxidators. And, uh, you know, that's where you want to focus. You want to focus in on the, the vegetables and add a little fruit here and there. And then, you know, if you're exercising heavily or you feel that, you know, you're low energy, I tell them, you know, use sweet potato or yam. I went, that's the easiest way. They're high fiber, so the glycemic index is much lower. And they also contain a lot more nutrients than, like, say, a potato, you know, our average white potato. But I say, you know, don't, doesn't mean you can never eat a white potato again. Just be careful. You know, don't eat, you know, an eight-ounce potato. You know, eat some potato slices. You know, and uh, that's where I go. I just tell them properly, start with your vegetables if we're working to lose weight, and then we can implement more nuts and seeds as you go because those tend to be high carbohydrate comparably. Um, but that's why I tell them to focus. Focus in on the natural carbohydrates, not the ones that are, you know, produced, you know, that are, are uh, 
you know, the breads, the bread's the toughest. You know, everyone's addicted to bread because it's sugar when it boils down to it. So. And you explain that carbohydrates aren't the only thing that contributes to energy. Now, I have heard that carbohydrates are the best source of energy. Is that something that's true or is that total myth? My personal opinion is it's total myth. Um, I've had discussions with Gary Tobbs about that, the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories. And just through my decades of experience as an athlete and training people and working with people, that I notice, you know, we have different abilities in our bodies, you know, different systems to be able to produce glucose outside of eating a carbohydrate. You know, through, like I spoke about earlier, through, uh, you know, gluconeogenesis is it's taking protein and converting it into glucose when needed. And if you have that excess glucose and you have, you know, room, you're going to store it as glycogen. And then through fat, we can, uh, you know, you, you, through the triglycerides, you, you, you kind of, through our liver, we can process and get the glycerol. And then we turn that into glucose. And then you got your ketone bodies. And it's been proven time and time again that we actually run far more efficient off ketone bodies, um, which is a partially burned fat. And so I think it's kind of a myth. And, you know, you wonder where it comes from, but more than likely from the agriculture business because they have, you know, for them, it's eat more carbohydrates. You need glucose. Of course, every cell in your body requires glucose in order to operate. We know that. But it doesn't mean you have to mainline it, you know, like heroin every single day. I think we average around 45 teaspoons of sugar a day in our diet, in the modern American diet. And we're supposed to get under eight. So, yeah, I just tell people, I have to explain the different energy systems and go, okay, you just don't get glucose from carbohydrates. Our body has the ability to produce that vital glucose for your organs and your brain when needed through protein and fats. And technically, there's one macronutrient you can survive without, carbohydrates, because your body has the other backup systems to be able to produce that glucose. You know, that's they've done extensive studies on the Inuit. And, you know, a large part of their diet for a large part of the year is nothing but fat and protein. They have access to nothing else. Uh, and they're one of the most healthiest populations we've ever studied. So it's just changing uh, their thought process. And that's the, that's the hardest part. But usually, you know, I just talk about the different systems because they, they just don't teach that in health classes anymore. It's just pure glucose. Get it, get it. You know, you got to eat your grains, whole grains. You got to eat your wheat, which we know wheat's horrible for you now. And I just get them away from that. And as I start to take that away, they start to feel better and they go, oh, you know. And yeah, of course, you got that, that transition process of making them fat adapted, able to actually burn fat for energy, which most Americans can't do anymore because we eat so much sugar and our insulin levels are so high. We can't access fat for energy anymore, which is our natural, our body's natural uh, energy source is fat. That's why we store it. What would you say is the best source of energy? Um, you know, for me, uh, I, I'm a pretty athletic guy and I always have been. For me, it's coconut oil, um, just because it's got those medium chain triglycerides, which are, you know, basically, you know, processed right into ketones. And it gives you instant energy. It's quick. It's a fast source. And I've used it with great success, not just with myself, but with clients. And they're shocked at how much energy they can get out of, you know, a couple tablespoons of coconut oil a day. 
Um, and that's probably my favorite just because it, it's also easy to find now. It's gotten, uh, coconut oil got kind of trendy, and uh, which is good. I mean, coconut oil is a great fat source, saturated fat. And that's probably my favorite because it's the most accessible and easiest, but it's also probably one of the best sources, if not the best source in all of nature. And more about avoiding sugar, that's something which pretty much I think everyone in the nutritional world agrees on. You see that from the Price, the Paleo, the Primal, the vegan nutritionists. They all agree to avoid sugars so you don't raise your insulin. But there are some natural sweeteners that some recommend to be okay in moderation, every once in a while, like coconut sugar, honey, stevia. What are your thoughts on those? Um, I recommend them as well, but as with uh, any sugar, I tell people, you know, it's obviously moderation. And I give them the prime example of, you know, I just go back to our ancestral origins. What would you have access to as far as sugar? You know, and they go, well, there would be fruit and honey. And I go, yeah, you'd have a hard time finding fruit unless you're in a tropical region. You're not going to find a ton of fruit. Um, and honey have these things called bees, and they like to protect it. So your access to honey would be very limited as well. Um, so I just tell them to use that thought process and think, okay, you know, if I'm going to use a sweetener, though, I should use natural first, honey, um, you know, your, your organic cane sugar, um, and use those. But you don't want to, what most people make the mistake of is they take out your processed white sugar, and then they substitute in a natural sugar, and you go, it's the same thing. It just has more vitamins and minerals in it, or mainly minerals. And I go, but it's still sugar. You're still getting that massive sugar dose. So I tell them the best ones I use is stevia, uh, or stevia, however you want to pronounce it. And that is probably the easiest one to use. It's highly accessible. It doesn't have the insulin or blood sugar response. So... I recommend that, but obviously I don't tell people, oh, you can't eat sugar ever again in any form. Oh, no, 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 just use your, you know, use your head. Uh, don't put five teaspoons of honey in your tea. You know, put one in there. Um, just slightly sweeten it. And I think most people get it. And once, one of the tools I use, too, is I take them grocery shopping. And we go through all the foods, you know, like the dried fruits that they add a ton of sugar to. And I go, see... And what you thought this was healthy, but it's actually not. So I make them aware also of all the added sugars in just normal food products. I mean, they add sugar to bread now. They add sugar to deli meats. I mean, it's insane where they put sugar. But they know it's addictive. <laughs> you know, they want to get you addicted to it. And uh, But for me, I, I think stevia is probably the best um, natural sweetener that I like to use. But I also tell them, you know, it's fine. Just as long as you get a, a, a natural, real sweetener. Just use it in moderation. It's scary how many things sugars are added to. That's another reason not to do these deli meats that you do in the stores. Instead, cure the meats yourself. And that is the key with the natural sweeteners is moderation. One advantage that the natural sweeteners do have over stuff like table sugar or high fructose corn syrup is they're non-GMO. A lot of these sugars are genetically modified, of course, the high fructose corn syrup, the corn, but also the Tabor sugar, a lot of it comes from GMO beets. So it does have that advantage, but it is important for people to realize. And I think it can almost be a real foodie rookie mistake of going for all of these foods with natural sweeteners, because when you have like a big spoonful of say, coconut sugar every morning, you put it in your coffee, it really ends up having the same effect on your insulin as putting table sugar in your coffee. 
Yeah, and that's what I tell them. I went, there is no difference. Uh, as far as nutritional value, there's a difference. Uh, as far as the insulin response, there isn't. Um, sugar is sugar. Um, but, you know, obviously we've got to explain the difference between fructose and, and glucose. So, you know, they're two different animals. They're processed differently, and that's what makes the high-fructose corn syrup so, so detrimental, you know, is you don't get an insulin response from a fructose primarily, even though it does cause insulin resistance, which is pretty interesting. But And it doesn't cross that blood-brain barrier either, and it doesn't, since it doesn't give you that insulin response, well, you don't have that, uh, you know, sense of fullness with fructose. That's why people who, you know, they'll remember the old famous fruit diets would just eat tons of fruit and never be satisfied. And that was part of it. You know, you're getting glucose and you're getting fructose, so you're getting a double whammy. Um, but, yeah, I explained to them that you just you have to cut down your sugar. And that's one of our main principles is removing the refined carbohydrates and your sugar. You have to reduce the sugar. And they, they get it. Um, and you've got to go through the sugar detox, and, you know, it's a little painful. But once they get past that, um, they really are amazed at how their energy levels change. And that once they become a fat burner, they can't, you know, they're like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm 20 again because they're not relying on that high-octane, you know, processed sugar all the time. And, and I, even I made that mistake years and years ago. I, was, <laughs> I substituted in all the organic natural sugars for my processed sugar thinking, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I didn't change a thing. I didn't change my consumption. And nothing changed. And I went, well, why didn't this change? And then I started researching more, and I went, oh, yes, I'm consuming way too much sugar in general. So I have a little life lesson with that one that I can share with my uh, clients and readers as well. And I think that probably happens with a lot of people when first getting into real food of making that mistake that you can have as many natural sweeteners as you want, which certainly, as you've found out, that's not the case. So a big part of your book is on nutrition and food, but also you talk in certainly a significant part of it about the importance of exercise. What do you see as the best types of exercise? Being a former athlete, obviously it's the traditional, you know, heavy weightlifting, um, you know, and uh, tons of cardio. I mean, I still remember working out for two or three hours at a time. And you, you add that to eating an unhealthy inflammatory diet, basically you're just destroying your body. And, but what it did is, unlike a lot of people um, who enter this genre that we're in in the holistic health, I didn't have a weight issue. I had the health issue. So, you know, I used to exercise to death, and I looked good, but on the inside I, I was unhealthy. And I tell people, you can't make up for the diet with unrealistic exercise, you know, the whole P90X and insanity movement, that's extreme exercise. And it's extreme exercise coupled with a very low calorie diet. Well, are you going to lose weight? Absolutely. But you're not going to be able to maintain it. Uh, you just not. You're going to have to change your eating habits and your exercise habits. So I tell people today is take a realistic approach on exercise, functional training, as far as what natural movements would you do if you were living out, you know, in, as our ancestors did. It would be basically squatting, pulling, pushing, and carrying somewhat, you know, heavy loads, but not you wouldn't be loading you up and doing a 400, 500-pound squat. So I tell them the, the basic uh, principles I use in exercises is, is the air squat, um, pull-up, push-up, and also um, I'm a big fan of, like, resistance bands, too. Um, I love resistance bands because you can take them anywhere. But I just keep it to the basics. 
I go, just keep it very simple. You can do pull-ups, push-ups, and, uh, and uh, um, squats, air squats, and basically you've worked your entire body, and you can do them anywhere. You can do them right in your living room. And that's what I preach now because I just have learned as I've aged to get a little wiser. And I try not to have any workout I do personally or anything I put my clients through be over an hour max. So I find the Goldilocks zone kind of in that 45-minute zone. Um, but there's days when we'll work out for 15 minutes and we'll just blast it out. So mixing in also high-intensity interval training, which is mimicking that kind of stress response, that that fight-or-flight kind of response. you got to get your heart rate up and moving. you got to get the blood flowing, the oxygen moving. And that's just simply, you know, high-intensity cardio for, you know, 10 to 15 minutes with intervals. So you'll, you'll go for 30 seconds full out. And the example I always use with people and I start them out with, especially my athletes I train, is they get on the stationary bike. And they go full-blown for 30 seconds, go as fast as they can. They take 60 to 90 seconds rest, do it again, repeat. And what that does is that gets their heart rate up and it also speeds, it's also been shown to speed up metabolism and also help with the production of HGH and testosterone. So it also helps build muscle, but it's quick. You know, no more of the, you know, two and a half hours of cardio. Um, but it's just some principles and it depends on the person again, you know, depending on what their their needs are, uh, what kind of activity you're looking for. I have clients that all I tell them to do is walk and then do a little bit of high intensity here and there, and they're totally fine with that. So it depends on goals, too, but I, I keep it very basic. And I've and people are surprised. I use the same exercises that I show them. Uh, I practice what I preach. I don't tell them to do anything that I don't do myself. Thank you so much, Gary. It's great to have you here and share your wisdom about the Primal Power Method. We're going to have to go to our desserts in a second. But before we go, tell the listeners where they can find your website. I have two websites. Uh, the main uh, shopping website is www.newamericannutrition.com. And then my blog is garyshealthtips.com. And you can actually link to the shopping cart from the blog. And you can link to the blog from the main shopping site. So it's very easy to use. And they can find all of my products there. I also have all my products listed on Facebook which is facebook.com forward slash New American Nutrition. Always great to have you here, Gary. Thanks a lot, Aaron. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. Today at the Rose Bowl is the fourth annual LA Street Food Fest. The event includes tastings from chefs, restaurants, carts, trucks, stands, and pop-ups. Many of my favorite sustainable restaurants are going to be there, such as Short Order, Loteria Grill, and Curryburst. The event starts at 3 p.m. for VIP admission and 5 p.m. for general admission. To learn more about the event, go to the website lastreetfoodfest.com. And tomorrow, June 30th at 1 p.m., the Culture Club 101 in Pasadena will be offering a class on how to make real root beer floats with fermented sassafras soda and cultured raw ice cream. You'll be able to take home a wild ginger starter culture and be able to purchase fermentation supplies. To register for the class, or to find out more about it, go to the page cultureclub101.com. For a more detailed list of events, check out the Weston A. Price Pasadena community calendar at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'll be off next week for the 4th of July weekend, but a return for a new episode July 13th as we kick off our Independence Month celebrating independent businesses. My first guest for the month is Jason Jones, president of Vital Farms. For more information on my guests, visit my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you. Thank you.